Welcome to the Addiction Psychologist Podcast, brought to you by the Society of Addiction Psychology. All right, welcome back. I'm Sam Acuff. Um, Noah Emery, the other uh, person who's typically the co-host, he's starting a faculty job at Colorado State University in a few weeks, and he's in the middle of a cross-country move. Uh, he also, uh, he and his wife also recently welcomed their first child, April, um, to their family. So, you know, needless to say, Noah is a bit tied up at the moment, and he won't be joining us today. Um, so congrats and safe travels, Noah. Um, I would like to welcome um, a wonderful colleague and friend as a special co-host for today's episode, um, Julie Cristello. Uh, Julie, can you give us a little bit of an introduction to yourself? Yeah, of course, and thanks for having me. Hi, everyone. My name is Julie Cristello, and I'm a fourth-year student in the clinical science program at Florida International University. My research focuses on the influence of social media on adolescent alcohol and drug use. I've also been a member of Division 50 since 2017. I recently finished a two-year term as student rep on the executive board of the division, and I'm also a student representative on the Technology and Communications Committee and Membership Committee. So I'm excited about this podcast, and thanks again for having me. Yeah, of course, Julie. Uh, long ago, um, five years ago maybe, I deleted my personal Facebook account, and I was only recently talked into getting an academic Twitter account, um, so I have zero experience with social media, and um, and and thus the the addiction psychologist podcast social media account um, uh, started off uh, wanting, uh, if you will. So, um, so Julie uh, has some experience um, with social media, and she's run the Society of Addiction Psychology uh, social media account for some time. And she's agreed to join us um, to help us out with that. Um, and she'll also be joining us for episodes occasionally and really just contributing in whatever way um, she would like. So we're really looking forward to having you, Julie. Thanks. So part of the mission of this podcast is uh, to highlight the work of students and early career researchers. Uh, and today's episode is a special episode that focuses on, on just that. Um, We'll be doing these sort of rapid fire uh, elevator pitch style interviews with 10 early career investigators about uh, posters that were selected for the prestigious uh, NIAAA and NIDA early career investigator poster session, which will be held on August 7th from uh, 4 to 6 uh, Eastern time as a part of the 2020 meeting of the American Psychological Association. Um, for more information, look out for any emails uh, and Zoom links from Bettina Hopner. Yeah, and I'm really excited for this poster session and podcast to be featuring the work of students. We will do this twice a year, once during the APA convention in August, and then also during the spring um, for the Collaborative Perspectives on Addiction Conference. Right. And so this year's a little, a little bit different because the posters session will be live um, and you can access it via Zoom. Um, and so... We can thank the pandemic for that, but typically you you might not be able to make these conferences, and so if that's the case, you'll at least be able to catch a few of these posters um, through our podcast. Um, I'd like to introduce Sylvie Goldstein, who's a third-year clinical psychology PhD student um, working with Dr. Nicole Weiss at the University of Rhode Island, and 
She also serves on the Diversity and Inclusion Committee and Membership Committee of Division 50. Welcome, Sylvie. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Glad to have you. Um, your posters entitled Cross-Cultural Validity of the SIP-2R for Indigenous and Black Adults Experiencing Homelessness with Alcohol Use Disorders. Uh, so, Sylvia, can you tell us a little bit about your work? Yeah, so um, this poster was done in collaboration with Dr. Nakia Spillane and Marie Tate from University of Rhode Island, and then Dr. Lonnie Nelson and Dr. Susan Collins um, from Washington State University, and also Dr. Collins, is, um, this, is, this study took place at University of Washington. Uh, so, you know, what we know to be true is that North American Indigenous and Black adults experience stark alcohol-related health disparities, um, such that they often report lower alcohol use than whites, but experience disproportionate alcohol-related problems. Um, we also know that North American Indigenous and Black adults are overrepresented among urban homeless people. And so in Seattle, Washington, where the data was collected, Black adults make up 32% of the homeless population, but 6% of the general population, while North American Indigenous individuals represent 10% of the homeless population, but less than 1% of the general population. So the SIP is a pretty popular and psychometrically reliable valid scale used to assess alcohol-related problems. And so the purpose of the study was to replicate a study by Mara and colleagues testing the factor structure and invariance of the SIP um, among members of diverse communities. And so they had tested some competing models. So we were aiming to test those competing models among North American indigenous black and white adults experiencing homelessness with alcohol use disorder, um, and also look at the measurement invariance across. So the study uh, had 493 adults at baseline, taken from baseline data of two larger randomized control treatments of harm reduction treatment across, sorry, two larger randomized control trials of harm reduction treatment across um, community-based settings. So first we found that the second order five-factor model um, was the best fitting for this sample, which was a bit in contrast to Mara and colleagues who found a one-factor model. Um, but for us, this actually makes a lot of sense and provides clinical utility given that this group of individuals is experiencing such high levels of alcohol-related problems. So having a five-factor model and having five different um, latent variables that we're all loading onto a larger latent variable, which is that alcohol-related problem, allows for clinical utility so we can figure out as clinicians what areas of problems maybe some people are experiencing, especially those of whom have such high levels of problems. And this can help um, clinicians address this in a clinical setting. We also found that the scale was partially invariant with only one parameter needing to be released. So therefore we could conclude that the SIP is invariant across our sample. And so by finding measurement invariance across um, these three racial groups, we can conclude that we can meaningfully compare across groups with little to no measurement bias, um, indicating that we can make meaningful conclusions about alcohol-related problems comparatively among um, these North American indigenous black and white adults experiencing homelessness with alcohol use disorder. So overall, we can say that, you know, we found the SIP-2R to be reliable and valid for this population. And I should also mention that these, both of these studies were uh, supported by the National Institute of Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, NIAAA. Yeah, thanks for that, Sylvie. Um, really interesting work. And I'm, I'm wondering um, if, you can speak a little bit to sort of the, the more global implications of this work. Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, so I think establishing measurement validity across racial groups, especially for those of whom 
East uh, measures were not de designed for is really important to all, should be important to all of us. Because um, it's important to know that we have validated measures and especially when we're trying to compare across diverse groups. And um, we wanna be able to say that what we're studying um, is actually what we're studying and it's not due to measurement issues given that a lot of these measures were created on typically white predominantly norm samples. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's important to kind of do this work on a lot of these measures that we, we tend to use to say something about these communities for health right. disparity research. Right, right. So measuring what we're measuring, um, you know, uh, for, for whom we're measuring it on. So. Exactly, exactly. Well, great. Well, thank you very much, Sylvie. Thank you. So our next presenter is Rochelle Cromash. She's a second year clinical psychology doctoral student working with Dr. Kelly Moore in the Crime Addiction Reentry Lab at East Tennessee State University. So welcome, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Of course. And the poster that you'll be presenting is Psychometric Properties of the Illness Attitude Scale Among People with Substance Use Disorders. So go ahead and tell us a little bit about it. Great, so my poster focuses on validating a measure of health anxiety, the illness attitude scale among people with substance use disorders. Um, so health anxiety is the excessive concern and worry about one's health, and it's related to depression, hostility, increases in emergency department visits, and substance use among people with substance use problems. Uh, but no studies have validated a health anxiety measure in a substance use population. Um, also, people in substance use treatment often report their physical and mental health are top motivators for them to seek treatment. Uh, so the goal of this study was to determine whether the illness attitude scale, also known as the IAS, can serve as a diagnostic tool for severe health anxiety among individuals with substance use problems. Um, so to conduct this study, um, the sample I used had 103 individuals in a residential substance use treatment who completed the IAS upon intake. Um, the IAS is a 29 item measure that assesses for the presence of hypochondriasis and health anxiety. Uh, we used an exploratory factor analysis to understand the amount of shared variance between IAS items and factor structures with two, three, four, five, and six factors were examined. Creators of the IAS initially tested a nine factor structure but we cannot test this due to the size of our sample. Um, bivariate correlations between the IAS total score and measures representing convergent and discriminant validity were also examined. So the average age of participants was about 41 years old and about 62% identified as black slash African American. The sample's average IAS score was 59 and an exhibited high internal consistency. Um, and we know a score above 47 on the IAS indicates the presence of health anxiety. So the eigenvalues and scree plot suggested extracting a three or six factor structure, but both of these factor solutions had numerous cross-loadings and lack of distinct factors. And we found the same thing for a two, four, and five factor structure. The communalities table, which is on my poster, uh, it tells us that almost every item shared over 40% of the variance with other items. And finally, we found that total IAS scores were significantly associated with total scores on the anxiety sensitivity index, but
but not significantly associated with total scores on the comprehensive effects of alcohol questionnaire. So overall, the IAS has strong internal consistency, convergent and discriminant validity. It's been used as a diagnostic tool with many factor structures, but it appears to be best conceptualized as a unit dimensional construct um, in this type of population, so a substance use population. Therefore, the total score can be used to measure clinical levels of health anxiety in this population. And finally, I'd like to thank my collaborators, Shania Siebert, Dr. Gratz, Dr. Tall, and my mentor, Dr. Moore. Thanks. Awesome. Um, so thanks for presenting your work. And I'm wondering, moving forward, how do you envision the illness attitude scale being used in residential substance use treatment facilities? Yeah, so given what we, or the little that we know about the relationship between health anxiety and substance use, I think it would be really helpful to have a health anxiety measure, hopefully the illness attitude scale given upon intake to a residential substance use treatment facility so that um, clinical staff at these facilities can address health anxiety for people with substance use problems. Um, and hopefully that would decrease their depression or hostility um, or the number of emergency department visits that they might have. Yeah, exactly. It sounds like identifying individuals with health anxiety can really help to inform um, their treatment while they're in substance use settings. So thanks so much for sharing this work. We really appreciate it. All right, our next guest is Katie Lindstrom. Uh, Katie is a third-year PhD student in the College of Health and Human Performance, working with Dr. Jaylee Tucker in the Department of Health, Education, and Behavior at the University of Florida. Welcome, Katie. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. Um, so your poster is titled uh, Social Network Feedback and Drinking Outcomes in Community-Dwelling Emerging Adults uh, Recruited by Peer Referral. Can you tell us a little bit about your poster? Yeah, so this is a project that I worked on in collaboration with Dr. Jiwon Chong, Susan Chandler, and Joseph Bacon, uh, under the supervision of my mentor, Dr. Jaylee Tucker at the University of Florida. So in this project, we examined alcohol-related feedback from social network members among community-based emerging adults and its relation to drinking patterns and consequences. So based on prior findings, we expected drinking patterns and consequences to be influenced uh, differentially by feedback type and source. So to recruit our sample, we used respondent-driven sampling, or RDS, adapted to a digital platform to find 357 risky emerging adult drinkers aged 21 to 29 living in the community in Florida. So from there, we recruited and assessed peers like themselves, and everything was conducted online. For our social network assessment, we used the Norbeck Social Support Scale, where participants listed up to 10 network members by relationship and age and rated the extent to which each encouraged, discouraged, or gave mixed or ambivalent drinking feedback. So alcohol-related feedback was calculated for different sources. Those were friends, spouses or partners, and other family members or relatives. Um, our outcomes here were the number of drinks per drinking day, drinking days during the last month, and negative drinking consequences during the last three months. So we used separate negative binomial regression models and examined them for the three different drinking outcomes and the three network sources. So the results were as follows. For friends, discouraging feedback was associated with fewer past month drinking days and fewer negative consequences. 
the ambivalent feedback or that sometimes encouraging, sometimes discouraging from drinking feedback from friends was associated with more drinking and more negative consequences. For spouses and partners, ambivalent feedback was associated with more negative consequences during the last three months. And then for family and other relatives, associations were opposite to those for friends and spouse partners. For example, discouragement from family was associated with more drinks per drinking day. So several covariates were included to control for potential confounding, but none of them were consistent predictors across different models. Uh, the results here support the feasibility of RDS to recruit community dwelling emerging adults, which has potential for reach and scalability. So in conclusion, as hypothesized, drinking feedback from close social network members was associated with drinking practices and consequences, which supports targeting social networks and interventions, especially those network members who drink together, and it suggests the importance of consistent messages regarding drinking and developing interventions to modify drinking behaviors and norms among close network members. Wow, Katie, that's really interesting. So it sounds like um, alcohol use is influenced by the social environment, um, which is sort of what, what we, we know, but, but what your study also suggests is that um, the relationship, the type of relationship actually has an impact on that, the direction of that effect. Yeah, exactly. Very cool. Absolutely. Well, can you tell me a little bit about um, respondent-driven sampling and then how it was adapted for a, this digital platform to recruit emerging adult drinkers? Yeah, so traditional RDS procedures use a sort of coupon system where members of the target population are recruited in person and they're given referral codes, their physical coupons to pass into their network. Um, what we did for the sample was actually go out to community venues like farmers markets or event venues where we would expect to find emerging adults. Um, we found these initial seeds at the events and let them take our survey um, on a tablet or even on their own phones by scanning a QR code if they preferred. Um, then we sent them the free referral codes as links um, through a text or email, whatever they preferred, um, to pass to others like themselves. Um, and then the rest of the data collection was done online. Uh, referrals could each send the links to three members of their network who could also do the same and so on and so forth until we reached our target sample. Um, and we also created videos that were embedded into the online surveys that explain the whole process uh, each step of the way. Wow, that sounds like a, a really great way to recruit and you're sort of penetrating into the population instead of trying to, you know, come at it from all angles. Um, was, it, was it pretty effective? that approach? Yeah, it was. It's definitely, um, we went all around like North and Central Florida to these different venues and really we're out in the community finding people that weren't students were actually live these emerging adults that were living in the community. Um, and that was a great way to find them other than uh, on college campuses and things like that. Great. Well, thank you very much, Katie. Very interesting work um, and good luck presenting on the 7th. Thank you very much. So for our next presentation, we are welcoming three students, Shelby Fisher, Tyron Slack, and Alan Crutchfield. Shelby and Tyron are second year PhD students, and Alan is a third year PhD student and a student working on the Division 50 Nominations and Elections Committee in the Combined Counseling and School Psychology Program at Florida State University, working with Dr. Deborah Eatner. So welcome to all of you. We're excited to have you all here. Hello. Thank you. Happy to be here. Thank you. Great. So the poster that you will be presenting today is Positive Psychology in Alcoholics Anonymous Literature, and we're excited to hear. All right. Thank you, Julie. So to start, 
our work was designed for two audiences, counselors and clients. Now, point blank, Alcoholics Anonymous is very effective, full stop. A 2020 meta-analysis by John Kelly recently showed that in many cases, it's just as effective as psychotherapy for people with substance use disorders. So to clients, however, some have an aversion towards the spirituality involved in AA, and others may be turned away by the strict uh, stance on abstinence. To counselors, uh, medical professionals can carry a bias and even negative attitudes towards substance use disorder clients and Alcoholics Anonymous. The problem with that is that we still have a problem. Substance use disorders are still a public health crisis, killing tens of thousands every year in the US, and only 10% of those are seeking treatment. So the reality is we don't have the luxury to snub things that work. What we do have is an opportunity to learn. Meanwhile, positive psychology promotes the value of things like hope, gratitude, and yes, even spirituality. Researchers have even started exploring those positive psych variables individually among substance use disorder populations with promising results. So perhaps the commonalities between positive psych and AA explain some of AA's success and counselors and clients alike can one, extract these values to apply them to a broader substance use disorder population, and two, gain insight, understanding, and familiarity with the evidence-based roots of some of the mechanisms used by AA, which coincidentally predate the modern positive psychology movement. And so perhaps one of the easiest ways to explore this further would be to review AA literature from a positive psychology lens. And while we did hypothesize that spirituality, may, maybe hope or gratitude might stand out, each of these fall under the virtue of transcendence. Ultimately, we took an exploratory approach. And we conducted a content analysis of the big book, 12 Steps and 12 Traditions, and daily reflection, reflections using in vivo 12 software. We used Seligman's 24 strengths of character and six virtues in any synonymous terms to search for their frequency in each book. For example, virtues of transcendence included strengths of beauty, gratitude, hope, humor, religion, and spirituality. Positive psychology constructs were present throughout each AA literature source. The virtue category transcendence had the highest frequency across three AA literature sources. Religion spirituality was the most frequent construct identified by in vivo, with gratitude and hope coming in second and third. Given the broad coverage of positive psych constructs in AA, and literature supporting positive psychology improving outcomes for people in recovery, we hope the study can give counselors increased familiarity and more confidence in the evidence base of Alcoholics Anonymous. For clients, even if you don't fully subscribe to Alcoholics Anonymous, you can still enjoy the benefits of it by working with your counselor to incorporate positive psychology into your therapy. Great, so thank you all for presenting your work. And I wanted to ask a question because we have many listeners, some who are in the addiction field, who aren't. And so if you are a psychologist or a clinician not working with this population, how or why would this work be relevant to them? So I think a, a good question someone should ask themselves is, you know, identifying like, hey, why, you know, why don't you see it as important? So, you know, there's an understanding that as we build therapeutic rapport with the patient, um, they share more of themselves with us. And if for a lot of people, they're not sharing their full story with us. So being able to say, hey, you know, I, you know, I'm a recovering alcoholic or I 
um, or this is something that is part of my past, having some knowledge of um, having knowledge of substance use and how it's treated and the actual evidence base behind it um, could be very there could be very um, could be very good for the therapeutic process, but also um, with really connecting connecting with the client and having a better understanding of where they're coming from. But also as a psychologist, knowing that this is coming from um, evidence-based kind of research. Cool. Well, thank you all for presenting and we appreciate um, you being able to join us. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so our next presenter is Stephanie Coronado Montoya, a PhD student in biomedical sciences and Venier scholar working with Dr. Juchas uh, Azwad and Abdel Baki at the University of Montreal. Um, welcome, Stephanie. Thank you for having me. I'd like to present today the SPICE survey, a Canadian patient preference survey that I'm leading for people with psychosis who use cannabis. So here in Canada, the cannabis legalization in 2018 brought to light important research gaps concerning cannabis interventions for vulnerable populations, such as people with psychosis. A systematic review that was conducted by our team found that today, only five prevention interventions have ever been tested in people with psychosis, none of which clearly demonstrated effectiveness in reducing or preventing cannabis-related harms. More cannabis prevention interventions are needed to protect this population from such harms. Integrating patients and their preferences into intervention development has been shown to increase participation and engagement. This is especially important given that people with psychosis typically have low participation and engagement rates. However, few surveys have been conducted in this population to address such a research question. That's why my team created the SPICE survey, an online Canadian survey that will document patient preferences for cannabis prevention interventions. We'll be recruiting 165 people with psychosis who use cannabis. We developed SPICE through an iterative process, which included conducting a systematic review, focus groups with clinicians and patients, and expert consultations. While SPICE incorporates traditional survey questions on acceptability and preference, it's unique in its integration of an innovative surveying method called discrete choice experiment, or DCE. DCE is a method commonly used in marketing consumer research. DCEs help us better understand what characteristics of a product are leading consumers to prefer one hypothetical product over another. We'll be using DCs in our survey and asking patients to choose between hypothetical cannabis prevention interventions and booster sessions. For example, in the survey, participants will be given the choice between three hypothetical intervention options, which are all the same, except for three to four key intervention characteristics, such as frequency and duration. The DC analysis will permit us to understand which characteristics are most strongly predicting the participant's choice of intervention. SPICE is the first of its kind to be done in this population and is being conducted in two phases. Phase one, already completed, consisted of pilot testing and modifying as needed the survey and its procedures. We're now ready for phase two, which involves the launching of the Pan-Canadian survey in four different provinces. SPICE will not only be essential in promoting patient-centered research, but will also be an important documentation of patient preferences for people with psychosis seeking cannabis prevention interventions. Our results can inform researchers and clinicians working on the development and tailoring of cannabis prevention interventions for people with psychosis by allowing them to better understand the different factors that might influence a person's decision to participate in an intervention. I also wanted to take a moment to acknowledge the support of Dr. Jutras team 
Dr. Abdel Baki, the SPICE team, as well as the support that Université de Montréal and the CRCM provided for this study. I'd also like to thank for the research and training support, the Fonds de Recherche de Québec en Santé, and Vanier Canada Graduate Scholarships. Thank you. Thanks, Stephanie. I, I really appreciate all that. And just a quick question. How do you think that this work, uh, you know, will be helpful for people who use cannabis? Well, specifically for people with psychosis who use cannabis, there's a lack of interventions that exist for them. And there's, like I said, there's very little participation and treatment engagement in this population. So if we're able to really tailor future interventions with exactly what it is that patients want and need, the chances of them participating in these interventions are much higher. And so the results of this study, what would be really great about it is if people integrate these, these uh, results into future interventions, participants will be more than likely to participate in it and we'll be able to give them the help that, that we've been wanting to, to give them regarding awesome. their cannabis use. Yeah. Great. Thank you, Stephanie. I, I really appreciate it. Um, thanks for joining us and good luck presenting on the 7th. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. So for our next presenter, we have Laura Kelly, who is a T32 postdoctoral fellow working with Dr. Kristen Zajac at the University of Connecticut School of Medicine. Welcome, Laura. Thank you. It's great to be here. And the poster that you'll be presenting today is the interactive effect of adverse child experiences and suicidality on adolescent alcohol and marijuana use frequency. So tell us a little bit about it. Sure, I'm so excited to talk about this project. This research was part of my scholar project that I completed during my year at the Rochester Institute of Technology's Priority Behavioral Health and Clinical Psychology Internship. I'd like to thank my two supervisors at Coordinated Care Institute, which is my primary internship site. It's Dr. Brianna O'Connor and Dr. Elizabeth Meeker, as well as the Department of Public Health and Office of Mental Health in Monroe County, particularly Deborah Hodgman, who led the data collection for this project. My presentation has been funded in part by my NIAAA-funded T32 postdoctoral fellowship at UConn School of Medicine. So like most of my research, this project came from a clinical question I had about identifying adolescents with the highest level of the two most common substances, alcohol and marijuana, and I wanted to direct intervention efforts where they're most needed. So I wanted to understand the youth with suicidality, so specifically thoughts of suicide, suicide plans, and non-fatal suicide attempts, and adverse child experiences, like abuse, neglect, household dysfunction, and witnessing community violence. So youth with both suicidality and ACEs would report the highest levels of alcohol and marijuana use. So from the literature, there's evidence for the effects of each of these problems alone. So meaning ACEs was related to substance use and suicidality is related to substance use. But my question is, do the youth with both suicidality and ACEs show even higher levels of alcohol and marijuana use than would be expected from either factor alone? And this data were from a large community-based sample representative of a county in upstate New York. Because I was interested in the youth who were engaging in the highest levels of substance use, I specifically looked at past month alcohol and marijuana use for youth who had reported using each of these substances in their lifetime. And the major finding was there was a combined effect of suicidality and ACEs on alcohol use. So for the youth who, with suicidal ideation, suicide plans, or suicide attempts, the more ACEs they had experienced, the more they tended to drink in the past month. But for youth without suicidality, experiencing more ACEs wasn't significantly related with drinking. 
And for marijuana, there weren't significant effects on past month marijuana use among those with lifetime use. Um, but I did some follow-up analyses where I tested only the youth with past month marijuana use, so potentially more chronic use, and ACEs and suicide attempts were each related to more marijuana use um, by themselves, but there was not a combined effect of ACEs and suicide attempts on marijuana use. So clinically, these findings suggest that integrated traumatic stress and alcohol interventions may be indicated for adolescents, and that such interventions should include safety planning and a strong suicide prevention component. And future research, including that which is being done at CCSI and the Department of Public Health right now, should examine the resilience factors that might mitigate the impact of ACEs, and particularly the impact of ACEs on substance use. Awesome. Well, thank you, Laura. I appreciate you presenting that. And I do have a question for you. So in your um, presentation, you mentioned some clinical interventions, and I'm wondering where do you think the clinical interventions discussed should be offered? Sure. So this data was from a sample of um, included youth from high schools across the county. So these were not only the youth who are in residential or clinical or juvenile justice settings. So I think there's a lot of good reasons for school-based interventions where clinical providers um, can come to youth with identified needs or as prevention programs for youth who might be at risk. And I ran mindfulness-based stress reduction groups for middle schoolers in a community school as part of an elective. And so adolescents are with their peers and their friends, school interventions overcome barriers like travel and insurance, and parenting interventions can also be offered in familiar settings so that parents can serve as coaches and reinforce those skills that their children are learning. Great. Thanks so much. Thanks. So our next presenter today is Alejandra Fernandez. Uh, she's a second year postdoc in prevention science and community health and uh, working with Dr. Guillermo Prado at the University of Miami. Welcome. Thank you, thank you for that introduction. Yeah, of course. And, and you're going to be presenting um, the poster entitled Screening for Family Function in Primary Care, Preliminary Evidence. Um, and I'm wondering yeah. if you could just tell us a little bit about your study. Sure. Um, before I start, I'd just also like to briefly acknowledge my collaborators, Ms. Alyssa Lozano and Dr. Taylee. I'd also like to acknowledge the National Institute on Drug Abuse who provided funding for this study. Um, so yeah, so my submitted abstract is focused on family functioning behaviors such as improved parent-adolescent communication, which is shown to be associated negatively with a variety of risk outcomes in adolescents, including substance use, and sexual risk behaviors. So efforts have been made to integrate substance use and sexual risk behavior prevention in primary care settings because of the exposure most adolescents have to wellness visits, among um, other reasons. Um, but the idea behind this study is that there are a variety of screening measures already existing used to assess adolescent risk of substance use and sexual risk behaviors in clinic settings, but each screening measure is often risk outcome specific and can be time consuming to administer multiple different risk screeners for different risk outcomes. So oftentimes this leads pri uh, primary care providers to prioritize screening for one risk outcome over another due to time constraints. Considering that existing research indicates that negative association between family functioning and risk outcomes, developing a family functioning screening measure to assess risk for multiple risk outcomes can possibly address time constraints in clinical settings. 
So this study used existing data from five randomized controlled trials. We harmonized the data across the five trials and had a total sample of over 1,800 Hispanic adolescents between the ages of 12 and 18. We used a three-step analytical approach to find a brief subset of items from family functioning items assessed consistently across each of the five previous randomized controlled trials. So findings from this study indicate that a subset of 12 items from an original item bank of 46 items assessing multiple dimensions of family functioning were negatively associated with lifetime and past 90-day alcohol, drug, and cigarette use, indicating divergent validity. So although we didn't find evidence that the 12 items identified were associated with sexual risk behaviors, this study does provide preliminary evidence that screening an adolescent for family functioning may provide some indication of their current risk for substance use behaviors. Great, thank you for that summary. Um, excellent work and based on the results that you found, um, what do you kind of see as the next steps for this, this work? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so based on these evidence, so there's preliminary evidence that these 12 items are, can be used to assess risk, but the next step would definitely be to validate these items in, um, in a predictive fashion to see if it's predicting substance use with, like one year later, or also um, determine the relative efficacy of these 12 items compared to existing uh, substance use screeners such as the craft or the audit and things like that. Great. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. For our next presentation, we have Kate Bartley, who is a clinical psychology doctoral candidate working with Dr. Vita Teig at Florida Institute of Technology. Welcome, Kate. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. So the poster that you'll be presenting today is Health Risk Perceptions and Secondhand Exposure Behaviors Related to Vaping Among Student Veterans. So tell us a little bit about it. For sure. So use of electronic nicotine delivery systems, or ENDS, more commonly referred to as electronic cigarettes, e-cigarettes and vapes, is associated with reduced pulmonary function, reduced cardiovascular function, and cytotoxicity. While secondhand vape is thought to cause many of the same health problems among non-vapers as secondhand smoke. Student military veterans are at particularly high risk for using ENDS given they possess many of the risk factors associated with ENDS use. They are also at high risk for exposing others to secondhand vape, given nearly 50% have children living in their homes. This is problematic given veterans and their children are thought to be more vulnerable to the health effects associated with ENDS. However, despite this, little is known about student military veterans vaping behaviors. So the current study, which consisted of an online survey and included 256 participants, sought to fill these gaps in the literature. Participants were recruited through Student Veterans of America and were eligible if they were at least 18 years of age, were a military veteran, were attending higher education, and were a current smoker, current vapor, or current dual user, which was defined as those who can currently use tobacco and ENDS products. Results of the study supported student veterans were significantly more likely to be current vapors and dual users than those in the general population which is problematic given concurrent use of ENDS and tobacco products may have synergistic negative health effects. In addition, student veterans were more likely to agree than disagree that vaping e-cigarettes is safer for the user than smoking regular cigarettes, and that secondhand vape is safer than secondhand smoke, which are perceptions that are not supported by the current literature. Reflective of these perceptions, less than 30% of the student military veterans implemented complete vaping bans in the home and in the vehicle respectively meaning most are exposing family members to secondhand vape. 
In addition, student veterans were more likely to implement complete vaping bans in the home and vehicle than complete smoking bans in the home and vehicle, respectively. And finally, logistic regression models supported student veterans were less likely to implement a complete vaping ban in the home and in the vehicle if they were current vapors compared to ever or never vapors, if they had low health risk perceptions associated with ENDS compared to high health risk perceptions, and if they had no children living in the home compared to having at least one child living in the home. They were also less likely to implement a complete vaping ban in the vehicle if they lived in rural rather than urban regions. So cumulatively, the current study supports student veterans are a key population to target regarding interventions to reduce ENDS use and increase complete ENDS bans. Given veterans perceive ENDS products as less harmful than cigarettes, and health risk perceptions predicted their implementation of complete vaping bans, effective interventions may include those that provide psychoeducation on the risks associated with ENDS use and secondhand vape. In addition, these interventions may be most successful if they target those who are current vapors, who do not have children, and who live in rural regions, as these are the student veterans currently least likely to implement complete vaping bans. In contrast, stress from being and transitioning from the military did not appear to impact the likelihood of student veterans implementing complete, complete vaping bans in their homes and vehicles. Great. This is very timely and important work. Mm -hmm. um, but I am curious, what are areas for future research or what do you see as next steps? Right. So one aspect of the current study's results that was surprising was the fact that student veterans' levels of military stress and levels of transition stress or the stress that they experienced transitioning from the military to post-military life were not significant predictors of the type of bans implemented in the home and vehicle of student veterans. So one potential explanation may be that the current study did not investigate those military and transition variables that most increase student veterans stress and therefore their potential for product use and likelihood of implementing a complete vaping ban. So future research should ascertain which unique military and transition stressors um, increase student veterans stress the most. Alternatively, another explanation may, may be that while some veterans may experience increased levels of distress from their experiences in the military, therefore resulting in greater susceptibility to product use and a lower likelihood of implementing complete vaping bans, others may experience post-traumatic growth, resulting in less susceptibility to product use and a higher likelihood of implementing complete vaping bans. So therefore, future studies may also examine veterans' perceptions of stressors experienced in the military, rather than whether a given military or transition stressor occurred. And this will allow us to better address the impact of, of military variables on vaping behaviors and allow us to create the most effective interventions um, so that we can increase rates of vaping bans among this vulnerable population. Great. Thanks for sharing and good luck presenting your poster on the 7th. Thank you so much. So our next guest is Kathleen Giratano, second year clinical psychology PhD student working with Dr. Constance uh, Dallenberg at the California School of Professional Psychology in the Trauma Research Institute Lab. Welcome, Kathleen. Thank you. Thank you, Samuel. Yeah. Um, so your poster is titled Assessing Support for Safe Injection Sites Among Adult Constituents in New York. And um, right. uh, I I'd love to hear about your poster. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So this research was in fulfillment of my master's degree and was really made possible with the immense help from my thesis chair, Dr. Marissa Beeble at the time at Russell Sage College, who is also co-author of this poster. Um, I wanted to also express my thanks for being a recipient of the National Institute on Drug Abuse Travel Award, 
So yeah, my research assessed community perceptions of safe injection sites using adult participants in New York. Um, I'm sure you and many others know the detrimental impact, impact of the opioid epidemic. According to the National Institute on Drug Abuse in 2019, 130 Americans died a day from overdose-related deaths. Safe injection sites allow injection drug users to use pre-obtained drugs in a hygienic and low-risk environment. Safe injection sites are typically supervised with facilities of licensed healthcare professionals and are designed to reduce public order and significant health problems. So this study provides evidence that the overall opinion of safe injection sites in New York is largely undecided. Using a hierarchical linear regression, um, it was found that participants who were employed had less favorable views of safe injection sites. Participants who are more liberal were more likely to support safe injection sites. Those with negative attitudes and beliefs towards drugs and drug users reported lower support for safe injection sites. And those who had familiarity with opioid drugs reported lower supportiveness for safe injection sites. As the community elects government officials to represent them, who then in turn implement community harm reduction techniques, it's important for us to know how the community perceives this particular program, so then we can make effective change. Yeah, thanks for that, Kathleen. And, and your poster talks a lot about sort of the acceptability of safe injection sites um, in, in New York. Um, and I, I'm wondering right. if you could speak a little bit to what the literature shows about the actual efficacy of safe injection sites. Right, absolutely. So a lot of the research done for safe injection sites um, have been done in Canada and also in Europe. This hasn't really been seen in the United States and is a really controversial issue. So in those areas, it's been shown that safe injection sites significantly reduce emergency room visits, um, which then in turn reduces the amount of taxpayer dollars for these institutions or, you know, the government having to pick up those costs afterwards. It additionally cleans up communities, so there is a lower risk for HIV contraction and the spread of HIV because people are less likely to share needles um, and exchange needles because they're at these supervised facilities. In addition, it's also been shown that people who tend to go and utilize safe injection sites have a greater likelihood of going to treatment. So a lot of the safe injection sites in those areas um, are, have treatment programs attached to them, and those people that utilize the safe injection sites are constantly given resources and availability to attend those treatment programs. So it's actually been seen that people who utilize the safe injection sites are then progressed into treatment who then have sobriety. So it's really overall significantly reducing the amount of overdose-related overdose deaths, reducing emergency costs, and um, just keep cleaning up the community. Wow, very interesting. Uh, well, thank you so much for talking about your poster, Kathleen, and uh, good luck on Friday. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. So our next presenter is Jacob Dayheim, who is a third-year counseling psychology doctoral student at Texas Tech University. He's working with Dr. Kim in the Department of Psychological Sciences. Welcome, Jacob. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about my research in which I'm passionate about. Cool. So the poster that you'll be telling us about today is titled The Pain Medication Attitudes Questionnaire in Conformity to Masculine Norms on Men's Risk of Abusing Opioids and Chronic Pain. So tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, so to kind of give a, just a brief little intro, kind of my uh, research as a whole pertains to chronic pain. 
So chronic pain is the number one cause of disability across the world um, and can have a profound effect on individuals, including psychologically, physically, and socially. To cope with this difficult health status, many individuals turn to opioids, drawing concern for their abuse. Indeed, individuals with chronic pain uh, are more likely to use and abuse opioids compared to the general population. This is troubling given that opioid abuse is associated with several negative outcomes, such as suicide risk, psychological distress, et cetera. And even the opioid epidemic was named a health crisis by the U.S. government um, in 2017, kind of uh, to show the weight of the seriousness of the issue. So specifically for this study, I kind of wanted to look at some factors that could potentially be used to help identify individuals' level of risk of abusing opioids. So delving into the research, I found that there are gender differences in opioid abuse. For example, men are more likely to have opioid use disorder compared to women. And when gender differences are evident, researchers argue that gender norms could be playing a factor that lead to these gender differences. So I wanted to look at uh, gender norms as a possible uh, identifier and an individual's risk of abusing opioids. And further kind of delving into the theory and research, um, I found that pain catastrophizing is a predictor of risk of opioid abuse, which pain catastrophizing basically means individual's perception of pain or the amplification of pain, like pain is worse than it actually is. And then another predictor is individual's pain medication attitudes, such as uh, fear of withdrawal, uh, aspects like that. So I proposed a moderated mediation model. And so in the moderated, sorry, in the mediated relationship, I predicted that pain catastrophizing is positively associated to negative pain medication attitudes, and in turn, negative pain medication attitudes is positively associated with individuals' risk of opioid abuse. And then I predicted that uh, conformity to masculine norms would moderate this mediated relationship. So I specifically looked at this moderated mediation in men and their uh, relation to gender norms. So I collected my data through MTurk um, and a total of 229 men with chronic pain participated. And what I found was a significant moderated, media, moderated mediation model. So in the mediated relationship, uh, increased pain catastrophizing predicted increased negative attitudes about pain medications. And in turn, as negative pain medication attitudes increased, risk of opioid abuse increased. And then men's conformity to masculine norms moderated this mediated relationship. Specifically, men with higher levels of conformity to masculine norms strengthened the positive mediated relation, contributing to an increased risk of opioid abuse compared to those with lower conformity to masculine norms. So kind of basically the main kind of takeaway from this um, was that findings suggests that men's conformity to masculine norms contributes to the risk of abusing opioids during chronic pain. And that men with higher levels may be at a greater risk. So this could help inform 
the identification of at-risk individuals and help inform this prescribing process of opioids in men with chronic pain. So that's kind of just a quick uh, snapshot of my poster. Um, and I really appreciate the opportunity to kind of, you know, describe it to you. Awesome. Thank you for joining us and sharing this important work with us. And I am curious, so what are the future steps or future directions of this work? Yes, I think that's a really good question. And I think the next step would be looking at specific masculine norms. So in my study, I kind of just looked at overall adherence or conformity to masculine norms by these men with chronic pain. But looking at kind of the specifics, I think could add some added value um, and kind of show where maybe those masculine norms kind of stand out. So say, for example, like a masculine norm of self-reliance or uh, risk-taking and so on and so forth. I think that could be really useful to kind of add more information to these findings. Great. Thanks for sharing with us. Thank you so much. Wow, what a journey we've been on. So many great posters, and I, I'm just glad that we had the opportunity, Julie, um, to interview these students, early career researchers, and, and hear about uh, the work they're doing um, on these posters. Yeah, definitely, and I really appreciate you having me on this podcast. To see the posters live and hear about the work of other students and early career professionals, you can attend the NIAAA and NIDA poster session hosted by Dr. Bettina Hopner on August 7th from 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern time. Yeah, absolutely. Attend the session on August 7th. And uh, I think that you would have access to that through, through either emails from Bettina um, on, on the listserv or um, probably also uh, on Twitter. Uh, I'm sure it's, it's being shared on Twitter quite a bit. So just look it up. And also registration for the APA convention in general is, is discounted 85% this year. Um, and it, obviously it's all online and attendees will have access to the content uh, of the convention through August 1st of next year. So a great opportunity to have the APA conference experience, but from the comfort of your own home and, and sort of at, at your own leisure. Yeah, this is my first year attending APA and I'm really excited that I'll be able to refer back to all of the content and APA Division 50 programming chaired by Dr. Susan Collins and Dr. Megan Kerouac. If you are a student and interested in becoming involved in APA Division 50, feel free to reach out to the student representatives, Melissa, Schick, and Sam, um, whose emails can be found on the Division 50 website, addictionpsychology.org. Yeah, yeah. And also reach out to us if, if you're a student or, or early career researcher who's interested in having work covered on the podcast. We, we're going to do these poster sessions um, for APA and then for, for CPA each year, but we also hope to um, have maybe a shorter episode each month or, or every other month devoted to a student or an early career researcher. So uh, reach out. Uh, we would love to hear about your work and we'd love to interview you. So um, uh, final thing, be on the lookout for episode three featuring a discussion about both harm reduction and the Division 50 um, diversity initiatives um, with uh, Drs. Seema Cliffasefi and Susan Collins. Um, so we'll see you next time. Thanks.